It's Corpus Christi, and we discuss the Eucharistic revival and birthday parties on Spirit Inspire, starting right now. Broadcasting from the Cathedral of the Assumption in Louisville, Kentucky, this is Spirit Inspire. And now, here is your host. Welcome to another episode of Spirit Inspire. I'm your host today, John Soul, and join with me, as always, we have good old friend Isaac Fox here. Hello, John. Hey, Isaac. Uh, Eric couldn't be with us today, unfortunately, but um, we have new microphones. I have to we say do. that first. We do. <laughs> Isn't that exciting? Look we at talked this. about this a couple of weeks ago that we were going to have new microphones, but today we're actually using them for the first time. That's right. Welcome to the new world. You know, that's the hope. Uh, in fact, speaking of new worlds, we're kind of in that beautiful space uh, as we prepare for the celebration of, or I believe really the, just after the celebration of Corpus Christi and the power of what is taking place in our Archdiocese of Louisville uh, and far beyond in the Eucharistic revival. So we have a lot of different ideas to kind of break open today in our discussion about uh, what does it mean to live a Eucharistic life, what is the Eucharist, the power uh, and beauty and gift that is the Eucharist, uh, and of course, as it relates both to the mystical body of Christ and the church, but more intensely as it relates to the profound sacrificial gift of Jesus Christ himself on Calvary uh, in that one time for all time sacrificial act of utter devotion, right? That's where we're at today. So before we jump in, maybe we could do a little bit of a history of Corpus Christi, where this celebration came from and why it is so important. So Isaac, would you like to jump in with that or do sure. you have other ideas, open sure. comments before? No, I'd love to. Go for it. So, you know, Corpus Christi is uh, a feast that has been around since the mid-1200s, mid-13th century. I don't know the exact year, 1250-ish, roughly. So we're somewhere in between 750, 800 years of celebrating this. Um, and then, of course, every Mass is a celebration of Corpus Christi, the body of Christ, right? right? And there has also been, prior to that, uh, Holy Thursday, right, which commemorates the Lord's Supper. Um, but it seemed that at that time, there was a real need to have a special feast and emphasize um, the, the real presence. And John, I'm sure you know the, the history of this. And I love this for several reasons. Um, this, the story that kind of inspired the uh, Pope Urban IV to institute the Feast of Corpus Christi came uh, from a small town in Italy called Orvieto. And right near here, there was a priest who was apparently struggling with accepting the doctrine of the real presence. You know, it was the church teaching, but he was having doubts. His faith was, was cast into question. And he didn't just, you know, throw it all away. He was honestly distraught about this. And he was praying and, and seeking the Lord on this point. And so a miracle occurred in which he uh, was celebrating Mass shortly thereafter, you know, raises the host to break it, and blood pours forth out of it. Mm. Um, he was transformed in his faith. <laughs> Obviously. And uh, Pope <laughs> Urban IV, if I remember correctly, was nearby at the time, and so he, within a very short period of time, he was able to come and see the miracle and so forth. They call this the Miracle of Lanciano. Miracle of Lanciano. Actually, 
We did an episode on the Eucharist late last year, and I think, was it you or Eric, I think, actually talked about this a bit? Eric probably talked about it more. I was speaking more on the fact that my mom and dad visited Rome. That's right. I forgot this. got to see this with their own eyes. Right, because it's still been preserved to yeah. this day. And this is, one of the most, this is one of the most profound moments of their conversion, yeah. that when they came home, impacted me and my brother for uh, yeah. all our lives, right? I mean, yeah. if you want to say at 14 years old, you got a sense of the Eucharist and the real presence... It would be through that experience. That's, that's awesome. Yeah. Well, there's there's a couple little little side stories, or I guess personal interests I, I find really cool about this. One is, and John, you know, and probably some of our guests know, that I own a restaurant, right. and I'm a little bit of a wine geek. <laughs> so Orvieto is located in an area called Umbria in Italy, which produces fantastic wine. And I love Umbrian wine, so it's very special to me. Yeah, Orvieto itself is known for a wine called Orvieto, which is a very nice white wine. But throughout the Umbria region, there's great red wines. Um, it's also, this Umbria is the same region which includes Assisi. So they're situated very close to each other, Orvieto and Assisi. And it's actually been remarked that this is the most saintly wine region of the world. There have been more canonized saints from this little region. It's crazy how many there have been. And not just like St. Francis, Something but there's been a bunch. do with the wedding at Cana and the drinking of wine you know, somehow has it, to do with sanctity. I find it really appropriate. We're talking about the body and blood of Christ. So, like, I love the wine connection there, right? Yeah. Um, but there's another saint associated with this that some people claim is the real reason for the Feast of Corpus Christi, because Pope Urban IV was the one that instituted it based off the miracle. But there was a, a girl some years prior to this whose name was Juliana. Her parents had died when she was young, and she was very devout, very spiritual um, from an early age, and she uh, felt called to the religious life, and she eventually became a prioress. And she felt very strongly that this was a message from God to her to uh, that there needed to be some kind of um, real emphasis on establishing a special feast in, you know, of the body of Christ. And she mentioned this to a few people that she met in the area. One was the local bishop and one was an archdeacon whose name I do not remember, but who later on became Pope Urban IV. And Juliana has been canonized. So mm. well prior to the miracle, uh, Juliana had been in the in the ear of the man who eventually became the Pope saying we need to have, you know, like I, I in so many words, I guess, saying I think God wants us to have a feast. And then many years later, of course, this miracle takes place in a very nearby region. And like God set it all up. Yeah. And, and I'm sure that had to still be in Pope Urban's mind of like, OK, this is two messages now. Time to do this. Yes. And then the last little thing I love is the the uh, the actual liturgy, the special mass that was written for it. Um, was actually written by by my hero, St. Thomas Aquinas, but it, it has several hymns <laughs> in it, Tantum Ergo, um, and a couple of others, which to this very day, and still in the traditional chant, we sing during like a benediction, you know, Eucharistic adoration, um, and they're just uh, beautiful, beautiful mm. words. That's so. when this stuff originated. Mm-hmm. It's amazing because I'd never actually heard that Corpus Christi flowed from the miracle of Lanciano. Yeah. That's... Direct, amazing. Directly, yeah. And it speaks in my own life of 
what my parents witnessed when they saw this place and knowing that in the history of the Archdiocese of Louisville, it's been many, many years since we have seen a swell of enthusiasm, awareness, or participation in the Feast of Corpus Christi on an Archdiocesan scale. I mean, mm -hmm. I think it was the early to mid 70s, 1970s, when they were celebrating the Feast of Corpus Christi at Churchill Downs and right. had 70,000 people in attendance back then. I mean, could you imagine any archdiocesan event today having that many people in That's attendance? That's insane. It is. And what was it just a few years ago, maybe 300 people or so? Right. You know, that but it was the first time since those days that anyone that I grew up with, you know, uh, that are now elderly, older, right. um, would then be able to say, I remember this. Right. But as, but how they reacted, it felt like, have we literally not done this at all so, in like 30 or 40 so years? So the actual procession here in Louisville um, was not done since the 70s or, or 80s? As far as I understand, until like I, don't, a few years ago. I don't know that, yeah. but it that's what I sensed. Or yeah. if it had been done, it was never done with this attitude of, we're going to do this every year from now on. Yeah. And I witnessed it, and, and this was Archbishop Kurt's last year as our archbishop, right. and he passed it off to Father Lineback, and we walked the Belvedere and back yeah. uh, two years ago. And then last year, we processed throughout the city of yeah, Louisville. With, with our new Archbishop Fob. With our new Archbishop Fob, as well as several priests, you know, uh, holding the monstrance, passing it oh. off to one another. Yeah, I was there. It was beautiful. Uh, it, it was. such an inspiring procession. And you think that th there's momentum growing right. here, right? right? And so this is how our archdiocese can take part in this beautiful feast that is 800 years old yeah almost yeah so i don't know there's just a lot to a uh, lot to be said about what god is doing in our city but also the importance of what the eucharist is for us beyond the big celebration right we're we're in just after corpus christi so when this airs we won't be you know we won't be able to say hey visit you know come this weekend we'll do it next year <laughs> um, right but so we'll have just celebrated the third uh, Corpus Christi celebration since uh, I would say it's been revived yeah. in our archdiocese. Um, but to really take this in, uh, let it be a part of your prayer, and uh, we invite you to yeah. really come. So. And, you know, I think there's something that's really beautiful about doing the actual procession, because, of course, the feast day is there in the church's liturgical calendar. And as we said earlier, every single Mass is about this in some way, which I, I think kind of brings to that question of why the Feast of Corpus Christi? Why is this special? Why do we need this? But one of the one of the things that kind of comes to my mind is this idea of the procession, which takes place separately from the Mass, right? Before, after. But we have, as the church, we have the understanding that we are the body of Christ. Right. And one of the beautiful... I mean, beautiful isn't even a sufficient word to describe it. One of the incredibly awe-inspiring, miraculous things that we have is Christ really present, body, blood, soul, and divinity um, in our churches. And so we're supposed to also be his body, and we're supposed to take Christ to the world. And there is something so profoundly beautiful that it's not just our own private devotion, but at this feast, we literally carry Jesus Christ 
throughout our world, into our streets, you know, streets that need him so desperately. That is very profound, and I think that it brings with a tremendous blessing and has uh, an amazing impact. Orvieto today in Italy, this is still like their biggest event of the year. They've never gotten over that miracle. You know, the streets, can't are, imagine the streets are packed for Corpus Christi. Like, that's like their biggest thing. And uh, that just kind of shows the power there when Christ is present in our streets. And, man, let's let's hope that happens here in Louisville. Yeah, I, I believe that's possible. Right? I, we absolutely. Have, we have to believe it. We have to trust it. We have to receive that gift slowly as an inheritance, right? It can't be something we grasp at or force or manufacture. Uh, it can't just be a program. Right, we we are so used to in our industrialized society, even in the church, in programming things. Right. right. Well, if you have the right, right program, the right DVD series, or the right book uh, series, or the right book study, or the right class concocted in the right way, then suddenly we can change everything. Right. And it's like the, we're not trying to fix a problem; we're trying to love and learn how to love and the only way you do that is through not a program but a process of prayer yes. the eucharist is first and foremost a prayer and that is the most critical thing that i think that we can receive in this and that's something that you receive every time we go to mass but you receive it more deeply and you internalize it so that it's not just so much receiving information, but it's more about receiving an inner transformation yeah. of your heart, of your mind, Absolutely. of your body, your lifestyle, so that you can then give of yourself and become the Eucharist, become the body of Christ out in the world as you serve, as you sacrifice, as you pour yourself out for all those that you love. You know, John, we talked a couple of weeks ago, we were talking a little bit about Mary and we didn't get into this much at the time, but there was some mention made of how she is the Ark of the New Covenant, mm -hmm. which the, the Old Testament Ark contained all those things which are symbols of Christ, the manna, right? The bread from heaven, uh, the tablets of the law, the priestly staff of Aaron, and how Mary contains that. Well, we're, we're called on, I think, to participate in that. You know, when we carry Christ within us, not just in a once a year procession, but Christ living in us, in our hearts, when we go out to the world, when we go out to the streets, when we go home to our families, when we go to our jobs, to remember that we are, we're little arcs, you know, we're, or, or little Marys in a sense, yes. carrying, carrying Christ. And particularly so, and this should be true all the time, but particularly so after Mass, when we have received Jesus. And I think, just a little personal reflection, and this probably does not speak too well on, on my part, but I think it's something we probably all struggle with. I find after Mass, okay, I've received the Eucharist, I've received Jesus, and particularly when it's Sunday Mass, and I go back home afterwards, and there's challenges with lots of little children, and mm -hmm. you know, all this and that, and it's easy for me to get frustrated. It's, it's easy hard to for sit me and pray yeah. after mass. Right? Yeah, it's easy for me to be tempted to sin. It's mm. easy for me to lose my temper and and you know snap at somebody or be rude and get frustrated. And I certainly don't feel like I'm in a super holy place. Now that might be an illusion. 
in a sense. Sure. Because being in a holy place or in a good state doesn't mean just sitting there with your hands folded. Sometimes you're in the nitty gritty of, of the world, right? Sometimes it's rolling up your sleeves and getting to work. Yeah. Um, but I remember a couple of times I've gotten frustrated with a, with some kids for getting in an argument or a fight of some kind a few minutes after mass. And I'm like, you just received Jesus. You know, like, <laughs> how dare you start squabbling again? <laughs> and then I think, well, but yes, I'm tempted to do the same thing. But the deeper question is, why is that different a few minutes after mass than any, any other, other time? time right? If, if I can really take to heart this idea, okay, I have Christ inside of me right now. You know, think of the old slogan, what would Jesus do? <laughs> right. Well, it's a great time to think of that because I'm, I'm carrying Jesus. And so I feel like I am more focused on I ought to behave in certain ways. I shouldn't be rude to my children, right? I should be kind and uh, charitable to people I meet and talk to. Okay, well, that's good. But why am I not that way the rest of the time? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So I think it's that transformation you're talking about, that that transformation of the Eucharist needs to become every day, yes. lifelong, permanent, not just, okay, I think that I should be a, a really nice person for 15 minutes after Mass, and then that 15 minutes is over. Well... I guess God's not looking right now. I can go back to being old me again. And it doesn't that's work. not true. It doesn't work. You know, a funny story to go with this is my pastor from when I was a kid used to basically chase people when they would leave mass early. Mm -hmm. And he was known for this. Like every six months, somebody would try to leave mass after, right after they received communion, before he's even gotten off the altar, sometimes before the final blessing or right after the final blessing, but the song hasn't even started. Yeah. And I remember serving with him one time and he would go off and, uh, and he would, he said, hold on, I'll be right back. And he went and, you know, basically kind of berated someone for leaving. <laughs> I don't know if I ever saw that guy again, but, yeah. um, another story of a priest who did this, uh, it wasn't our pastor. It wasn't at our church, but somewhere else, um, is that a woman had left early consistently from mass and the priest simply didn't go after her, but he simply sent his two servers with candles after her to follow her. And she felt pretty frustrated about that, of course, and confused. And she asked him, why did you do that to me? That was very embarrassing. He said, don't you realize that you are a living tabernacle after you've received the communion? I was simply providing this altar servers to aid in the procession. That's beautiful, actually. And I'm like, what That's a beautiful. beautiful way to address the depth of what's taking place yeah. at the Mass, right? Yeah. To really drive it home. It's not about leaving. Uh, like uh, my chaplain wow. in college said that. once uh, to the whole congregation, all us college students, he said, you know, there's a million reasons that you could be late for Mass, which, is, which are very legitimate. I understand. But there is no reason that you should walk out of that door early. Yeah that I could ever accept. And I internalized that. I mean, he was just really trying to drive a point home to the college students. Yeah, I mean, there should be, could be some legitimate emergency or whatever. Right, but, yes. but he was trying to get a point across, like, why are you coming, right? Because yeah. uh, as college students, young adults especially, it's the first time they're out of their parents' mm -hmm. home. They're on their own. They're living their own life. They have to make their own decisions. Am I going to come to Mass or not? Right. And usually at a Catholic campus center, a Newman Center or anything like that, any young adult who is physically coming to Mass wants to be there. Right. 
right? And so because your parents aren't there to tell you anymore, you got to go to church on Sunday. Exactly. Right? There, so, there's something else happening if you want to be there, right? And it's usually those people that are either recent converts or they're those like myself, by the grace of God, who were instilled. Uh, the importance of going to mass regularly was instilled within me enough to where I knew I needed it. Right. And I knew I needed it for not just my own personal sake, but so that I could become Christ in the world. Exactly. Right. And so it was recognition, like you said, with the, the amount of time we received the communion, uh, received communion and becoming the body of Christ. I thought of how many hours do we spend watching television or how much time do we spend scrolling on social media or our computers or watching sports or doing anything that we enjoy, right? And or things that we shouldn't be doing that we've developed an unhealthy disordered attachment to. But even the quote unquote good stuff, the things that aren't bad. You know, I think that's where the line gets drawn even more. Like the stuff we shouldn't be doing, we could say, okay... That needs to be rooted out of my life completely. But those things which aren't bad, per se. Those are the harder ones. Well, I don't know. Maybe, maybe not. I think it depends well, each one yeah, of us individually. That's true. That's true. But, right. but regardless, it's it's that's where... I guess there's more clarity with the bad stuff. Like, we know this should not be filling don't our time at all. I need this out of my right. life. Right, right. But it's those things that are either rather innocuous or possibly even goods in their own way... Um, but why would we still focus on those rather than the greatest good? Right. Well, this is what the Eucharist does for us. It helps us enjoy the things that we love rightly and root out the things that are evil and tearing us down. So I look at the Eucharist as a sacrament of deliverance, right? I mean, think of it as uh, that old 1970s song, Signed, Sealed, Delivered, I'm Yours. Okay. Um, I I was sitting... Introducing John Soule. That's right, everyone. Um, I was sitting in confirmation of 90 kids uh, of our parishes right before the COVID lockdown, like a week before. And I was sitting next to a kid I was sponsoring who... I don't even know if he believed in God because I've never seen him since. I pray for him. Um, but uh, I was just, it, it hit me of every time I heard Archbishop Kurtz say, be sealed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit mm-hmm. over and over. I thought of the concept of a gift. And you think of the Eucharist as the ultimate gift, right? Sure. This is my body given for you. And I thought, what do you do with a gift? And I was thinking, well, first you have to... Sp- if let's say it's a gift of money or a, a letter you're writing someone or or just a present, there's some level of signing your name on it, right? right. Giving uh, and you buy that, you give it, you know it's associated with you, and then you seal it. You know, there's some level of sealing it. So you sign the card, you seal the gift, and then you deliver it. Right. And I thought of that I song, like that. and I was like, "What the heck is this song doing in my head during confirmation?" But that's what I started thinking about. Oh, I like that. Yeah. And so, signed, sealed, delivered, kind of became my mantra of the sacraments of initiation, mm-hmm. baptism. We are signed with the the Spirit, right? We are given the the sign that we are we are dead to sin, and we have been washed clean of original sin. Right? And the church uses the term an indelible mark. An indelible mark, right? Which sounds like signing. So we're signed, right? Then we are sealed with the gifts of the Holy Spirit at confirmation, and then we are delivered through the Eucharist. Now, I thought it was intriguing to me that as 
you know, there was a time in the church, and you might know this, I don't know the exact timing or who's, who decided what, but there was a time where babies received all three sacraments mm-hmm. of initiation, and then there was a point in the church where they moved two of them to the age of reason, and then at another point, they moved confirmation outside the normal order, because it usually is baptism, confirmation, Eucharist. But now, people are seeming receiving baptism, then Eucharist, then confirmation. And it seems a little disordered, but I look at it as Jesus wants to be with us so desperately, he's willing to pa- allow the sacraments to get disordered on some level to reach in and bring deliverance yeah. even before we have been sealed, right? I think there's... I, I, th- I think that at each point in history, there's reasons for why those things happen. Right. And sometimes I suspect there have been cases where maybe those reasons weren't the best, or maybe there's misunderstanding. Um, First Communion, not that long ago, I want to say 1700s, 1800s, was pushed back much later than now, like into the teenage years. And that First to me, Communion was? Yes. Yes. Whoa. At least in certain places. And that to me is far too late. Yes. Right. But then again, you also have the 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 early tradition of infants receiving the Eucharist. Right, because whole households were brought into the yeah. church. And well, and that's a great point too, because of the in the apostolic age, the very beginning of it, before the church became something that was generational, the first uh, generation, your converts were adults. They weren't having babies born into the faith yet. Right. And so you either had strictly adults or you had adults plus their family. And so I think it made a lot of sense for everybody to kind of get it all done at one time. And especially, and we don't know exactly how the apostles did this, but it, it, it does make sense if they were doing it that way. There was also very few of them to begin with, mm-hmm. of the apostles. So I can't really imagine, you know, St. Paul going to someplace, uh, maybe Thessalonica, and, all right, we're going to baptize a couple thousand people here. And <laughs> 10 years from now, if I'm not in chains, I'll come back to confirm you. <laughs> right. right? You yes. know, so Let's I get can, it all done yeah. right now. Yes. <laughs> but then there's been other times in the church where, let's say we were, well, the practice of communion with infants or fairly young, that actually lasted for quite a while. We have good historical documentation of that. Right. Um, and I suppose one side of this to me seems really beautiful because it's true that child is not at the age of reason, but they weren't when they got baptized either. Correct. And so they received the Holy Spirit of baptism. Well, they're now receiving Jesus. You know, what a great start to life. What an impact that's going to have. But there's two concerns. There's obviously the concern of just general reverence for the Eucharist. Right. You know, babies spit up and, you know, like, this could get messy, right? (laughs) That's practical. (laughs) Right. And then, of course, you would have the concern of them not being at the age of reason and maybe you wish them... freedom, free will. Yeah, maybe you wish them to understand what they're receiving before Mm. they began receiving it. And that, that can also be a matter of respect or reverence. And so maybe there were very good reasons to change that. But then you have possibly pushing the extreme. Well, you need to be 12, 13, 14 years old and really understand all of this. So I'm sure there's always been good reasons behind these changes. Um, But maybe some of them were just for certain times. Yeah, they feel less dogmatic and more uh, cultural. Yeah, like we're, we're in some kind of particular situation right here. And, you know, I... I don't know. I can imagine 
Maybe if you lived in an intensely Catholic culture, maybe pushing some things back a bit would be okay to a later age. But right now, I think we need, our kids need every grace and good as early as they can. (laughs) I know. Well, there was a time as a youth minister where I thought to myself, gosh, confirmation needs to be like 17, 18 years (laughs) old, right? Because they don't know what they're getting. They don't understand. And that was part of me thinking that high schools could, you know, take part in some sacramental Mm -hmm. preparation and Mm -hmm. the responsibility of preparing them for those sacraments. Um, But as I've gone over the last few years, I've moved less from when to why i don't necessarily care when because i care more about if they understand and receive the gift right not make a choice confirmation isn't a rite of passage i'm an adult now it's not a uh, graduation experience now i understand jesus enough to say i'm done with catholicism which is what generally happens after confirmation and they never come back right i asked i asked a teacher recently uh of the kids that you know she guides through confirmation how many even believe in god she said maybe half so sad and that's that's hard to believe and yet that's just the state of the industrialized culture we live Mm -hmm. in and us trying to break out of old frameworks to then provide the new wine Right. Mm-hmm. And that's that's hard because that forces us to think differently, think less in programs and more in prayer. Yeah. And when we do that, it's more about what are the sacraments? They are a gift. What is the Eucharist? It is a pure gift from God. Now you can choose to receive that gift and stuff it in a closet, never even open it. Yeah. You can receive the gift many times, but never keep going. And all of a sudden you just get distracted and forget about because you think another toy is better. But the, ultimately, this is the pearl of great price. This yes. is the treasure buried in the field. For which a man would sell everything he has. That And this goes back to what you were saying, John, about like reasons for leaving mass early. I think a lot of this issue is that we just don't, we believe, but maybe we don't always see how staggeringly amazing this is. Because if we did, we would realize immediately, oh, yes, we should be willing to sell all we have to go get this Pearl of Great price, <laughs> right, right? right? And it's kind of more like, yeah, I know there's a Pearl of Great price out there in that field. It's pretty awesome, you know, like, yeah, yeah. But maybe it hasn't really sunk in how awesome this is. Yeah. Um, when you were talking, though, and we're talking about the sacraments and how maybe when, we, uh, when they were administered has changed throughout history. I thought of something, and I think it's very pertinent to this conversation about the Feast of Corpus Christi. Yep. And that is how frequently we receive the Eucharist. So this is something which has changed a lot in the history of the church. Of course, in the earliest days, in the apostolic era, there was, again, um, not really the availability of apostles and priests all the time. It was a Sunday-only kind of thing. And then as as the church became, you know, more widespread and vigorous, we certainly began seeing Mass celebrated publicly more frequently throughout the week. But you, you also have periods of time in the not-too-far-distant past where the receiving of communion was a very infrequent thing. Mm-hmm. So we have, the church says, you know, you got to go to Mass every Sunday, but you only got to receive the Eucharist it's twice a year, is it? Once a year, I think it's once a year. Once a year. And 
Which kind of brings me to this whole question of what are we doing the other 51 Sundays? Why would we not receive the Eucharist? Um, and understanding this is a minimal requirement kind of thing. I get that. Correct. But I also think that we have a change in our society, a change in our culture. And there's also been a little bit of a change of perspective in the church. We want to understand how valuable the Eucharist is. We want to understand the reverence we should have to Christ's presence. But it does seem that there may have been times in which there could be almost this danger of fear. It's so great, I shouldn't approach it. I've got to make sure I'm in like the holiest state possible. See, that's you know? not the healthy fear of the Lord. That's right. the over-scrupulous And attitude. again, we know, sure. of course, we shouldn't receive it in a state of mortal sin and all this and that. But I'm saying beyond even that, um, or it could be looked at as a reward for good behavior or, or all of these things. And what I think happens is that with the more frequent reception of communion, we begin to understand what St. Ignatius of Antioch back around AD 105 said, it is the medicine of immortality. And I love the use of the word medicine. Mm -hmm. And I can tell you for myself as a person who has struggled even with various psychological and mental issues, the Eucharist is medicine. It's many things, but it is certainly medicine. And so I, I suspect that, again, if we were in a very vigorous Catholic culture um, in which maybe maybe we could hark back to some earlier time and in, in which um, everybody was kind of on the same page and they well, prayed their rosaries as a already, family every day. Right, and People were already living Eucharistic lives anyway, so the yeah. kids would absorb it naturally and then they'd understand what they're receiving yeah. for their own deliverance. Then right? it may be different then. Yes. But I look at our culture right now and it's not how <laughs> Yes, first of all our culture has a very negative impact on us. I feel like we need a ton of grace to survive a day in our culture, mm -hmm. you know. And then so many of us again because of this have experienced so many wounds and we have so many broken places mm -hmm. that I think what we're seeing now is simply another aspect of the Eucharist. The other wasn't false. The awesomeness and, you know, this is holy ground. Be careful how you tread here. Don't don't get overly familiar with the Eucharist. Don't act like, hey, it's a cracker. I can just pop one in my mouth every day. That's right. what that's what good bishops wanted to avoid in the days when they correct when they were trying to kind of deter people from frequent receiving. I get it. I think it's a valuable lesson to be to Remember, be learned. Remember, this is almost like the height of Christendom. Right. But right now. I think we're in the case of we need medicine and we need to take that as frequently as we can because yes. we are a broken people. Pier Giorgio uh, Frazzati was mm -hmm. one of the ones in the early 1900s who, as a layperson, was receiving the Eucharist much more frequently than most people were yes. at that time because back in the early 1900s even, that was not, it wasn't like today where people are receiving it more often. Right. Today... I heard Matt Frad say this once in one of his talks before he was doing Pints of Aquinas. Uh, and I will never forget because he has shared his powerful testimony of overcoming pornography and yes. he gives talks on that. And he said once... And he's done so much to help other people now too. Oh gosh, so much. And he said, uh, I'll never forget this. 
instead of staring for hours into the flesh of pornography? What if you stared for hours into the flesh of the Eucharist? Yeah. And the idea... That'll transform you. Right. And and you think someone addicted to pornography, how many hours of consuming that pornography have they spent during their life? If they were to find deliverance and get away from it, and then they were to do the math on how many hours they spent since they were whatever year they fell into it, how much time did they spend? Mm -hmm. And then if they were given a chance for deliverance and freedom... I would say one of the only, if not the only thing that will give someone true hope in lasting freedom is the Eucharist. Yeah. Because the Eucharist is the body and blood of Jesus Christ himself, the only perfect body in the history of humanity. I think in the end, because our, our relationship to God and specifically to Christ as a divine bridegroom is and this goes this goes straight into your field of theology of the body sure. it's a nuptial relationship it, it is a, it is a marital sort of union that is the fulfillment of the deepest longings of the human heart well what is pornography but that longing uh, run amok, right? Sent in the wrong direction, which which really is what every sin is. Yes, it's, it's ultimately everything. ultimately the human person has engraved very deeply in the very fiber of our be- being the longing for God, for the infinite, for the ultimate, for the you know for for perfect being, and yet what happens is we worship idols. We replace God with something small, less finite. And we make our lives all about that. So in a sense, it's a form of idolatry. Yes, it is. I heard uh, Bishop Barron quite recently talking to a, a young atheist. They were having just a, a lovely sort of podcast conversation. And he made the, uh, the point. He said that he was talking about this very, very thing. He said that the Bible doesn't ever talk about atheism. It talks about idolatry. And his point was to say that he thinks that that is all there really ever is. It's either God or idolatry. Everybody, atheist, agnostic, theist, whatever, we all have some sort of profound longing. The question is, what are we going to worship? And and he said, if you find out what a person worships, you're going to actually understand that person. Yes. But the reason I said that is because... We have this longing, and so pornography is one of many ways in which it gets twisted, in which it gets, um, you know, the true happiness, the true spousal imagery, the true union with God, which will satisfy us. This is but a twisted shadow of that. And so, to your point, John, I think the Eucharist is profoundly powerful on the topic of pornography, because it is precisely the reality of which pornography is the twisted evil shadow. Yes, it's the exact because antithesis it, it is, of it. It is the wedding feast of the Lamb. Right. It is the fulfillment of every sort of marital union, wedding longing that, that humans have in their heart. So it, it has a very... I mean, yes, it's powerful for every kind of sin. It's Christ, of course. It's very specific But I'm saying there, there's a very specific connection, well, think I of it, think. You say, for, with the Eucharist, this is my body given for you, poured yeah. out for your sake, right? Pornography does the opposite. Mm-hmm. This is your body yeah, I'm, I'm gonna taking take it. Yeah. for me. I'm emptying you out for the sake of myself instead of emptying myself out for the sake of another. It's the exact inversion of the wedding vows. And ignoring... 
what is actually the person there, which yes. is why I think it is it's one of the reasons it's so gravely wrong is it is it is a denial of of the person's humanity. It's it's sort of like a mental murder. Yes, and you had you I had think we talked about this a while a previous back. Yeah. episode, but but getting back to the Eucharist as far as Corpus Christi, like with yeah. with the idea of seeing the Eucharist as a profound gift, you know, and, and John Paul II even said this in Gaudium et Spes many times has he quoted it, and he probably wrote this passage, which, which is why he quoted it. Man cannot fully find himself except by making a sincere gift of himself. Right. And that gift is what the Eucharist is. That's what all the sacraments are. But the ultimate sacrament is the body and blood, soul, and divinity of Jesus Christ. He is the he is the fulfillment of the sacraments. The reason the sacraments even exist is because we killed him. We, we, we tried to snuff out the ultimate supreme gift of eternal life, right? And so it was fragmented on some level, right? We broke the mirror. We shattered the, the covenant, and it splintered. And what happens when you, when you break a, a mirror and then shine light in it? It becomes on some level a prism. Right. And so Christ's body is the ultimate sacrament. It's where all the sacraments point us toward. It's the, the source and summit, the spirit and spire of our you, faith. You could say the incarnation itself is the ultimate sacrament. It is God. And the, the incarnation is the reason there are sacraments. Right. Everything has to flow from Christ. This is God uniting himself with matter. Yes. Right. This is the ultimate sacrament. <laughs> And so, yes, we have seven of them, but in reality, it's like there's only one. There's the incarnation. And that's, that's the that's point. That's what it is. That's the point. And, it's and the Eucharist is, of course, for us now in our time and place in history, it is the absolutely the ultimate because this is still the complete connection with Christ. Yes. And, All and, the graces are there. And so you think of the, the seven verse one, you, you have the, the colors of the rainbow when yeah. light reflects through a prism, right? And so think of the rainbow as the infinite spectrum of human personality. Each one of us is unique in our call to be an image and likeness of God, right? But God is that original primordial light mm -hmm. that brought about all of existence, right? And God the Son was present for that, just as the Holy Spirit was hovering over the chaos, the abyss, and he brought us into existence, right? And if we're a glimmer of that light, a, a colorful expression of that light, when we look at one another, can we pass through the the confusion that might come from that individualism that mm -hmm. the culture looks at as you making your own identity right. and seeing it more as an expression of the ultimate identity as sons yeah. and daughters of Christ, right? That is and so this, important. This reveals God to us because, again, when you go back to the idea of, of man being made in God's image, it wasn't just man right uh, it's one person it's it's a relationship it's all of humanity you talked about god being that primordial light well we cannot understand even on a scientific level with our let's say our eyes in the natural world white light right, right? we we don't recognize what is actually there it's just blinding light <laughs> it might even destroy our eyes to look into it if it's too bright but you were using the analogy of it passing through a prism. It's like, okay, now I see it has this and this and this and this. Well, think of God. You know, in his divine essence, 
No human can comprehend that. Why do you think the apostles cower in fear, hide their eyes, yeah. or every Marian apparition, like yeah. the little girls at Fatima, it's couldn't like even look at? It's like this it. blinding light that none of us can comprehend. But when it is sent through the prism, and it begins to break up into little colored pieces, we start saying, "Oh, I get this little bit of it. Oh, oh, okay. It's starting. I see this." And and what is that? But first of all, it's the incarnation, mm-hmm. right? Christ making God visible to us so that in every action of Christ, whether it be an action of tender love and mercy towards a woman caught in adultery, whether it be an act of uh, righteous anger cleansing the temple, <laughs> right? Every one of he, his actions are revealing a new, uh, a new color in the rainbow, so to speak. Mm-hmm. But it's also true of each individual Christian. And it's so awesome because we've talked about this before. Saints are not boring. No, they're not. There is no formula for the kind of personality a saint should have. And I love this because we can get stuck in this notion of piety as like, you know, oh, I'm going to sit with my hands folded and I'm going to do this kind of thing. And then you start actually reading the lives of the saints each one of them is radically different. You have quiet, retiring ones. You have big, bold, boisterous ones. You have ones that, you know, like uh, Father John Bosco, who who works with the street boys. And he was he was a kid himself in the country, and he could do all these cool things. And, you know, he could beat people in wrestling matches and climb to the top of tall things. He was a kid, yeah. even though he was a father as well. And you have, yeah, you just have this absolute variety of personalities well of course because god is this infinite light it's going to take more than one or two types of personalities to shine that through a couple of great examples of this that i heard uh jason Everett share mm-hmm. once was uh the story of uh st louis de montford he was a fiery preacher right yeah. really oh, yeah. powerful from the pulpit and one day he uh, was preaching his hum- humbly and uh some Guys from the bar across the street came bold, bouldering into the church in the back, causing a ruckus, and then they left. Well, he stopped his homily and walked across the street and beat the tar out of these guys, <laughs> right? Well, who do you think was there in the front row of the pew in the next mass yeah. <laughs> receiving the gospel? Yeah. Those guys, right? Mother Teresa wouldn't do that. No, right? there's, there's all different <laughs> kinds. And my, my favorite... Probably one of my absolute favorite stories about St. Louis de Montfort. I hadn't heard that one, but I love this. Um, true story. He had found a poor man in, in a gutter, a beggar, sick, probably almost at death's door, starving. And you, you, we have the gospel passage in which Jesus says, Inasmuch as you did it to the least of one of these, my brethren, you did it to me. He's talking about things like visiting those in prison, giving a cup of cold water, clothing the naked. And so the, the, the church has always seen this idea of Christ in others, Christ in the poor, Christ in the needy, in the downtrodden. And it was a very real to St. Louis. And so he picked this man up to get him to the church and get him help. And he came running, carrying this man, running or going as, as hard as he could to the church doors and shouting, make way, Christ is coming through. Wow. While he's holding this half-dead beggar in his arms. Wow. It's just beautiful. Um, I wanted to step back for a moment, though, because we started us talking about Corpus Christi, and we talked about our archdiocese. We talked about these Corpus Christi processions. Right. And I know we 
our time's a little bit limited. So kind of two thoughts in my mind on this sure. specific topic. The first one is you were talking about not leaving mass early. And it made me think of, of this period of time, which we call Thanksgiving, which used to be very traditional after mass, right? And right, not the Thanksgiving meal right. on the Thursday in November. Right. This was <laughs> when Mass was over. Once you'd heard the dismissal go in peace, you didn't bolt for the door. You stayed another five to ten minutes on your knees, right, or sitting. It was a period of Thanksgiving. Right. And I think that that is something that got lost for a long time. I'm seeing a lot more of it come back. Starting to. I'm beginning to realize it in my own life because I realize how many years after I became Catholic, I, you know, and I don't think I was intending any disrespect. I never even heard of this idea, but I was like, okay, on to the next thing. Mass is over. Head out the door. And now I'm beginning to realize if I want to receive the fruits of the Eucharist, they have to impact me on a personal level. It's not enough to just say, okay, I receive Jesus. What is Jesus trying to do inside of me? How is this going to transform me if I don't take a little time in his presence afterwards, recollecting my thoughts and, and sitting there with him? If you walk, if you welcome Jesus in your home... And then ignore him, what good is it And then ignore him, what good does it do? Especially if he wants to do some demolition and clean right. your house up. <laughs> you no, know, that's a brilliant example to explain what, what I couldn't explain. That's exactly right. If, if, if Jesus came into my house and I proceeded to continue my own ordinary life, as if he was not there every single day, not listening to anything he said, doing my own thing. And you don't even offer him a I, glass of water. Right. And then I went off and told people, well, I'm special because I got Jesus in my house. Is anything being changed because of this? And how is it they going to change? They might arrest you for kidnapping right? more than... <laughs> right. How is it going to change if I do not sit down and talk with him and mainly listen to him mm -hmm. and hear what he wants to say? But why might we not have this habit of of doing thanks a little thanksgiving when we have time after mass why might many other issues have occurred well i think fundamentally it comes down to lack of belief in the real presence yes i think that if we really really truly believe what the church has taught and always taught for two thousand years dude we would be on our faces yes and this brings us to something i know you wanted to talk about and that is this Feast of Corpus Christi that we're talking about today ties directly into something else. And that is the Eucharistic revival here in the United States. The U.S. Council of Catholic Bishops Huge. has uh, set up and got, got the ball rolling on this, something they wanted. And the precise reason, and this is going to roll out over several years, and you know a lot more about this than I do. But the uh, precise reason um, for this is, in my understanding, and you can correct me if I'm wrong, was really based off of like the Pew Research statistics showing how few Catholics now believe in the real presence. And it's a it's a shocking statistic. I don't know if you know the number off the top of your head, I don't. but it's it's bad. And it does, that doesn't surprise me, but it, it is a shocking. And what's interesting is this has never been an, an easy doctrine to believe. We were talking about Corpus Christi starting with a a priest who was struggling with this, right? And yet the reality is this level of lack of belief is a very recent thing. And so the bishops have realized this. Um, and I think we'll see more attendance at our, our uh, 
at our uh, Corpus Christi uh, processions. I think we'll see people, you know, maybe hanging out a little longer after Mass. And I think we'll start seeing our lives and our neighborhoods and our streets and our parishes being renewed when we start with getting back to the absolute basics of our Catholic faith, one of the most important ones of which is the Eucharist is the real presence of Christ. Jesus himself never left us. He promised, I will be with you always. When did he promise this? As he was ascending into heaven. Yes. Okay. Is he lying? No. He was leaving the earth, but he said he was going to stay. How did he do that? How's In that the even Eucharist. possible? Right? I will be with you always right. until the consummation of the age. Right. Bishop Barron described the ascension of Jesus as like a general moving to the back of the mm. battlefield to get a better view. I like that's that. So he could command his troops more effectively. And the Eucharist is almost... I wouldn't say like a radio signal. Maybe that's a good analogy when you're talking about a military battle. But when I think of heaven and earth and our call to receive the Eucharist and what it is, I think of a uh, an amazing birthday party, surprise birthday party. So when I was 25 years old, my 25th birthday, um, my brother had me in the car. He was driving uh, me to my sister's and I was thinking we were getting dinner or something. I'd seen my grandma earlier that day and... She wished me happy birthday. We we're celebrating St. Luke's 50th anniversary because that was the same weekend kind of experience. And uh, I had seen a lot of my family the whole day. So I'm just thinking I'm having dinner with my sister as part right. of the day. And my brother says, put a blindfold on. And I was like, okay, what is this? And I'm What's not your thinking, relationship with your like your brother? Is this a terrifying suggestion? No, well, it's <laughs> right. It's like, well, what's he gonna do? Right, it, right, and he's a magician, Run so me. it definitely yeah. gets me going. Walk like, me what? off a twenty foot drop off right. or something. And he, his explanation is, well, I, uh, our sister does has something in the yard that she doesn't want you to see. Gotcha. It's like, okay, that's fine. Well, the things were the cars in the yard, right? <laughs> of all the other people. Of all the other yeah. people. So so he has me blindfolded and he he carries, he walks me up to the front door and he's like laughing and I'm like, what is going on? Because I'm not thinking of surprise party because right, right. of how they disoriented me. And then my sister uh, comes out and is laughing at me and then she pushes me forward and my brother jumped in front, in the front door and everybody screamed surprise. And it was the last birthday that I ever and my grandma there. I use this example because within a year or two of that, I had this profound realization of what the Eucharist is. Right. And it is the fact that we are all in this world walking around blind. Yeah. At the most profound birthday party that we'll ever experience. Mm -hmm. But the earthly pilgrimage is the drive, right? Yeah. And the being blindfolded and the not knowing where you're going. The Eucharist, in this case, is the physical touch that my brother had to do to hold my arm, to guide me to the door. And then my sister was, in that moment, acting like Mother Mary and the voice as she came out and was physically there to then push me forward Mm -hmm. into the house within my brother being there, as Christ is up to all of us, a brother, to then welcome us home to the greatest birth of eternity where we are reunited with our family and friends forever. I will never forget that birthday because my grandma said, one day you're going to turn 25 and things will just start to click in your life. She died less than a year later and things sure enough started to click. 
And ev- I mean, literally, a family renewal project was founded. I started my work at the Theology of the Body Institute, going through certification, all in that very year. It was the year of mercy, for crying wow. out loud, yeah. when this happened. So the Eucharist, to me, is that profound physical presence of Christ, guiding us through this cloudy, confusing world Which it of is. darkness. Yeah. So that we can trust the only hope we have to get through this life, to then come out on the other side with all the faithful departed, especially those we knew in our own family, our own friends, uh, those who changed our lives that we may have never met, like Matt Fred, you know, and and Jason Everett and these awesome people who've given amazing talks that... And written amazing books that have helped us. Father Mike Schmitz. Yeah. Right. What an impact that man has had. Yeah. And you and I have never even met the man. I know. It'd be so awesome to. This is part of what it yeah. means to live in the Eucharist, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. We are we are one body, says Saint Paul, because we all partake of the one bread. That's a really important uh, passage. It really sets. Um, that Saint Paul's theology of the Church is centered on the Eucharist. And of course, obviously, that can't just be something symbolic in St. Paul's mind, because he's literally giving the reason for our unity is the communion we receive. It's got to be more than just a piece of bread. Has to be. Um, Has to be. But what I was, you know, kind of um, going back just a step here, what I was thinking about, and I, I don't think I was expressing it terribly well, but I think the idea is there, that if we do really realize Christ present with us, never left, that same Christ that we read about in the scriptures, to whom we pray, whom we worship, whom we adore, with whom so often we may have this feeling of, oh, I wish I could have been with the apostles. I wish I could have been with Mary, you know, Martha's sister, sitting at your feet and hearing you Mm. teach. I wish when I need healing, I could have been there when you were walking the earth and touching people and speaking words and healing them. I wish, I wish, wait a minute, I can. That same Jesus of Nazareth is still here in every church, every single day, still living with us, even physically present. Yes. Even physically present. We can, when we're very, very blessed in certain places, like my parish has a 24 hours Eucharistic adoration, I can go in at 4 a.m. if I wanted to, and I can sit like Mary, Martha's sister, at, at the feet of our foot Lord. Of the master. Yeah. Yes, yes. This is why I think the Eucharistic revival is so incredibly yeah. important because of that four part national march all the way through the country and part of that march that procession the eucharistic procession with the monstrance one of the four uh paths are passing through louisville on their way to indianapolis did not know and this is happening next july um not this july not a month but in a year and we are going to be able to actually you could probably drive your car over like toward to it, be part of it and then literally depending on how much time you got walk with the procession 
through the area that you can physically yeah. make time for and witness this experience walking through the city of Louisville on its way to Indianapolis and then a couple days later drive yourself up to Indianapolis for the closing ceremony. Or if you had lots of time you could just walk from Louisville to Indianapolis. Right. But that would take a, a well, while. Of course, right. You could just <laughs> keep walking if you wanted. I mean, I guess you could drive yeah. down to Texas and yeah, start yeah, with you them. Could, you could but think of all the bishops, the priests, yes. the cardinals, the huge. lay people that will be all part of the same procession at different points and how that unites us in this country in a way that has never happened in the history of America. I think even the idea to do this, I mean, this is, this is a spirit, this is a Holy Spirit moment. Um, And so there's some interesting details too, about how all this is being rolled out. Maybe um, we could take a short break. I grab a little water and then we could talk about the Eucharistic revival for the last few minutes. Yeah. Sounds good. Cool. Perfect. Oh yes. All right, everyone. If we will be right back after a short break on spirit and spire. See you soon. Hey everyone, this week's episode is sponsored by Family Renewal Project. FRP is a local theology of the body apostolate in service to the Archdiocese of Louisville. They're dedicated to renewing the culture through the renewal of the family. They have so many amazing things going on, so check them out at familyrenewalproject.com. Welcome back everyone to Spirit Inspire. We've been talking about... Uh, Corpus Christi and the power of the Eucharist. So it's been a great, great time. Uh, it, it almost feels like time has stopped for us. We've it just does. Been... We just looked at the time and it feels like we've been talking forever and not that much time has elapsed. I know. We, we both noticed this. It's right. kind of It kind of speaks awesome. to what the Eucharist is on some level, right? Yeah. It bends time and this cosmic way of the one sacrifice for all and how we receive that gift of love and mercy and deliverance. And I, I think back to everything we reflected on with the the power of the Eucharist to bring deliverance, the gift that it is for all of us, and the and the power of how that brings our bodies, our souls, our entire lives uh, and beings into the grand story of salvation. Um I think of the history of what we talked about, where it flowed from the miracle of Lanciano and the establishment with Pope Urban the Fourth, right? Uh, the Fourth, uh, yes. The Fourth, and all of the the gift that it has been over the last eight hundred years, as well as the history of its impact in the Archdiocese of Louisville, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. with back in the day, uh, with the seventy thousand people at Churchill Downs in the seventies, to Man, now. I'd love to see that again. I I believe it's it possible. Happen. I believe it's possible, yeah. and especially as each. year year we build a little bit more get a little bit bigger i think father lineback when uh after the very first one he said one day soon we're going to be at fam uh, uh lynn family stadium the new soccer yeah. field downtown right who knows yeah. one day we could have it that yeah. big right we just have with to, god all things are possible that's right that's right and so but it but it requires our cooperation yes our transformation uh and the transformation of so many of our family and friends and then we of course talked about the eucharistic revival and how that can be a spark that leads us down that path where yeah. we could realize that yeah. you know i mean we got 10 years till the 2000th birthday of the catholic church right oh 2033 times i know it's a very exciting 10 years and uh, of course there's some ideas and things stirring uh, about what that can look yeah, like, but yeah. of course we're not in a position yet to share that. Um, but Do you have some secrets coming. up your sleeve, we, John? We might have a few. <laughs> I'm not going to go there. I could restrain myself yes. a little bit more, but it's a very exciting time. Uh, and I pray uh, so much for our priests and our yeah. Archbishop Fob, who is discerning these things and and. Um, 
and who is a wonderful archbishop. And he Man, really is. Uh, he's fantastic. such a gift. We've and if anyone very, hasn't seen our first episode, he was our very first episode we ever had. My my oldest daughter got confirmed a few weeks ago, and um, of course, he did the confirmation mass. You know, he confirmed her. And I just have to say that the homily he gave to the kids getting confirmed has got to rank in one of the best homilies for any mass I have ever heard in my life. It was so powerful. Wow. It was incredible. Yeah, I mean, he, uh, he wrote a reflection on the record for Pentecost mm-hmm. uh, last week or so, and he talked about the... He, he simply... And he always invites you just in relationship with Jesus. It's always about Jesus Christ and the person of Jesus, right? Yeah. And this time he was speaking of the person of the Holy Spirit, but he did so by saying, imagine yourself in the upper room with the apostles. You just witnessed the death and resurrection of your master, your the one you've been following for yeah. all these years, his ascension into heaven. He called you to make disciples of all nations, but you have no money, no infrastructure, no, no training, <laughs> no courage. You're terrified of being martyred next, yeah. right? All of the, and you're kind of in shock because yeah. six weeks of the past six weeks have been the most transformative in the history of humanity. Yeah. It, and it feels more hopeless than maybe it's ever been. Of course, you're hiding from the Jews because you're terrified. Um, so you're, you're behind locked doors. He said, it is in this situation where things seem most hopeless, mm. most bleak, most impossible, where you are best able to know the person of the Holy Spirit. That's powerful. And I thought of my whole life with growing up at St. Luke and all the difficulties and pain that we were yeah. suffering, as well as the the things that I experienced in my own personal life with my family and the healing, and, and then just recognizing the cultural secularization of so yeah. much we've witnessed in the whole church. It's easy to despair. It's very easy to despair. And you feel like it, it's never been this bad, but how many saints yes, it has. <laughs> in their lives have said that, right? Yeah. Oh, it's never been this bad. It's the end is nigh. We can fall into that mentality. We can also fall into the golden age mentality. Uh, If only we could go back in time. But I think of it more like, just see that the Eucharist is present for us in the ups and downs of human history to bring constant renewal, restoration, resurrection. But the only way you get there is through different experiences of death and suffering and pain and loss, right? That's it. And if we can embrace that, then the Eucharist will change our lives. But but it starts with the suffering. And I share this experience uh, with you, Isaac, uh, that I'll never forget. I was in Israel with my wife, Crystal, uh, with the Theology of the Body Institute. And it was Christopher West, giving different talks. And and, uh, every time he spoke at different locations, it was just profound depth and beauty. And and he shared with us when we were at, um, in the Garden of Gethsemane. And I will never forget, and I got a lot of this on video, so I would love to just go back and listen to it. But um, he was, we had just celebrated Mass. We were able to place our hand on the rock that Christ would have been on in that very garden. And he said, you know, usually we put ourselves in the place of the apostles and uh, when we do Stations of the Cross or all the different things, because this was the beginning of our trip 
on uh, our way of the cross, the mm-hmm. Via Dolorosa, right? And he said, I want you to imagine yourself in the place of Jesus because you are Jesus. If you really hear that, receive that, think that through, where have you been persecuted? When have you suffered? When have you been wounded? And abandoned by your friends, felt everything was hopeless? Yes. When have those moments in your life made you feel completely alone, forgotten? And can you enter into that mystery? That that is how we are the mystical body of Christ. And it is in that situation where we are most able to become the body of Christ in this world. Mm -hmm. We aren't always going to get all this resurrection and highs, right? Because a lot of the highs of Hollywood are oftentimes very, very shallow and empty, right? And they can be misleading because it can be based on illusion. And yet true joy, true happiness comes about through our ability to embrace and offer up our suffering for the redemption and hope of all those we love and for those we don't even know. Uh, As St. Paul says very clearly, if we die with Christ, we will also rise with him. But that's also the prerequisite. We don't get to the rising part unless we go to the dying part. it's, uh, It's kind of like a like a, I don't know, it's almost like a formula. I don't want to make it a sound dry, but it's just a fact. Like, that's how it is. Two, uh, two thoughts that, that I had related to this. <clears throat> One is, right before the break, we were talking about how differently we would view the Eucharist if we really were very aware of how great the reality is. And, you know, we, we talked a little bit, again, pre-break, about... Maybe uh, people leaving mass early, and I, I don't want any of that to sound critical. You know, we all go through these phases in our in our life where we we are not really paying attention to the awesomeness of the mystery. It's very true. And I remember, and I wanted to share this because um, I, I think it's important. In two thousand and twenty, when all the lockdowns started because of COVID, we were not able to publicly celebrate mass, or we couldn't receive the Eucharist. You know, we, at our parish, we did mass out in the parking lot. Everybody had to stay in their cars, you know, but you couldn't receive the Eucharist. Now, for me as a Catholic and as a convert who came to believe all of this, the Eucharist was very important. Intellectually, I believed in what it was, right? right? Mm. And I remember what sort of happened when I could no longer receive the Eucharist. And this went on for some long period of time, as you remember. Yeah. And one of the things um, about myself at the time, I rarely ever went to daily Mass at this time, which is Sundays. And by the way, this is no, like, spiritual requirement for people. Some people have different schedules, have different needs, whatever. But I tend to work a job where I'm busiest in the evenings, but a little more flexible during the daytime. <clears throat> And I just almost never bothered to go to daily mass, like almost never. You always had the chance, but you couldn't or didn't think about it. And you spoke yeah. earlier, John, of if we were to add up all the hours of not just the bad things, but but even like scrolling through our phone and social media, 
Daily mass takes roughly 25 minutes on average, depending, <laughs> on, what, less, depending right? on what parish you go to. Do you mean to say that I can't find 25 minutes in my day? And so at this point, the loss of being able to receive the Eucharist actually made me appreciate it more. There was a longing there. And I think that that longing is sort of there in a subconscious way, but it wasn't until I was without it that I felt it. And I remember thinking, because none of us knew what was going to happen in the world, like, my gosh, are we going to wind up in, uh, you know, any number of possible scenarios? Oh, yeah. The, we, the we disease could think gets worse, or maybe more people die, the government collapses, right? Who knows? Or, or, right, or maybe political players use this opportunity to try to shut down the church. Like, you know, we have all these different possibilities kind of going through our mind. And I just remember thinking in that, in that time, if I have the opportunity to go back to Mass, I am going every single time I have the opportunity. And it's it's a bit shameful to myself to say that I hadn't done that before, that I hadn't found those 25 minutes. No, I can't do it every day. Some days things happen. But I have tried since then. A much more concerted those, effort. Those last, these last three years to go as frequently as I reasonably can to daily Mass. And I will tell you, John, it has made a difference in my life. Big difference. And also, though, this is something that came out of a period that wasn't good. You're talking about good things coming out of suffering. The other little share I wanted, story I wanted to share is, um, and I'm going to say this without you know, any kind of names or details. It's a very sort of a painful uh, matter. Sure. My wife and I have some friends, beautiful family. We've known them for a number of years. And uh, it's an interesting. We had talked between the two of us a number of occasions saying how very Catholic they seemed, even though they weren't Catholic, right? And as an entire family, they entered the church a little over a year ago. And uh, which is beautiful. Yeah. A very profound distinction in Catholic thought is our view on suffering. That we've, we view it neither as something to be gotten rid of. So you can have certain forms of Christianity um, the, the health and wealth doctrine, right? Like you should experience blessing after blessing, you know, like in material ways. No, 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 not, not that. Nor do we view it though as a stoic thing, like a, well, grin and bear it and all in God's will. I'll just try to get through this, be patient, you know, whatever. <laughs> right. But we view it theologically. I'm not saying that as individuals, we, we find it easy to hold this view, but theologically we view it as a union with Christ and his sufferings. <clears throat> And an opportunity to do actual spiritual good, that we can bear the sufferings of others, that we can offer our own sufferings up on behalf of others. So it becomes an actual positive spiritual work. God transforms the suffering, not just to shape our characters. Like, I think I understood that when I was a Protestant, that suffering can maybe change us in certain ways. But before I encountered Catholic teaching, I did not get this concept of how this is actually something that can turn into gold, you know, and be offered on behalf of other people to help relieve their sufferings, to to join into the process of converting, you know, other people and, and all, all the good that can come forth from this. So anyway, our friends who became Catholic a little while back and just beautiful people, um, they have, I want to say seven children, I think. And... Um, we found out recently they were expecting again. 
And two days ago, my wife called to tell me she had just heard from the mom she'd had a miscarriage. And it was the second miscarriage she's had in a couple of years. And that's a very tragic and painful event for anybody to yeah. go through that. And I think maybe particularly so in some of their circumstances. And she communicated with my wife how grateful she was with this happening at this time that she was now Catholic. Because she could understand offering up the suffering now. What a profoundly beautiful and, and moving testimony, not just of this woman's faith and love and courage, but also of how different it is to have a true understanding of suffering. To realize in the past, this would have been, okay, God help me get through this, but this is, this is dreadful. <clears throat> and how now she is actually taking this in the middle of her own sufferings and offering it up on behalf of others as a spiritual work. It's really, really um, inspiring and it's, really powerful. It's something that speaks into the heart of who we are as human beings called to be in, in, in the image and likeness of God in a <laughs> sense where Christ did not suffer and die so that we wouldn't have to. Right. Christ suffered and died so that we would know how to and where to, what to do with that suffering so that we could bring hope and transformation for so many. I mean, that is so inspiring and so beyond most people's comprehension. But it requires sitting in a posture of receptivity, being yeah. a willing and teachable spirit. If you can't receive the Eucharist, it's probably because you can't receive a deeper understanding of the Eucharist because maybe you don't have the receptive, teachable heart. And so if today you hear his voice, harden not, not your, your hearts. hearts. John, you spoke earlier of um, gift and birthday parties and all of this. And you talked about sealed, signed, and delivered. What do you do with a gift? What does a person do who receives a gift? What's the first thing you do when you get a gift? Thank the person, hug them. And something. what does Eucharist mean? Thanksgiving. Yeah. It's the <laughs> ultimate gift and it is the ultimate offering of Thanksgiving. Yes. And what's profound is the fact that the gift and the Thanksgiving are the same. Because we are not capable of giving God a gift that is worthy of him. And so he gives us everything we need by giving us himself and then where we now need to turn around and say an infinite thank you, but we can't because we're finite. Even if we were holy, we're finite, mm -hmm. right? We don't just have it. Mm -hmm. But then on top of that, we're sinners as well. He also then gives us the same exact thing to then offer back in thanksgiving and praise to him. So he both gives us the gift. This is, this is something no human can do. This is divine love for you. This is divine um, extravagance is that if I give you a gift, I hope you say thank you, and you probably will. God not only gives us the gift, he gives us the thank you too. That's extravagant. Yes. That is the depth of divine love, that he gives us everything we need, and then also says, I know you're not even capable of saying thank you, so I'm going to give you the very word, the incarnate word, to say thank you with. Mm. 
That Christ all in all. Right there is what it is. It is the Word made flesh, flesh. the incarnation, the immaterial essence entering into matter so that we can now understand and embrace that matter matters. When Jesus says, this is my body given for you, our response can be, this is my body given for you because all I have is what I'm about to receive and what I'm about to receive is my truest self who is Christ, Christ in the flesh in the way that only we can only understand by spending time with him, by listening, by receiving, by being willing and open. And that is a, a, a journey. And it brings new meaning to that cheesy 1970 song, sign, sealed, delivered. Yeah. I'm yours. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. I'm That's the next giving one. myself to you. And it's the thanksgiving. Ah, oh, praise yeah. the Lord. And we said all this starts with the incarnation. What, why do we speak of the incarnation of the word? You know, it's the second person of Trinity. Why this emphasis on the word? Well, think for a moment. If you have an idea and you want to communicate that idea to me, the idea is immaterial, okay? And I don't mean in the sense of that it doesn't matter. I mean that it's a, an idea is a spiritual thing. It's not a, a thing in matter, right? And now if I'm a thought reader, I could pick up on that idea in your mind, but I'm not. So you've got to communicate this with to me in some way. And you do that by speaking. So that idea, the thought that you have, the thought of your mind, now <coughs> manipulates sound waves. It manipulates matter in order to be able to enter into my eardrums, my consciousness, so I can now comprehend that thought. And so it is with us and our relationship with God. I suspect that before the fall... There would have been a, naturally in Adam and Eve a more uh, direct spiritual awareness. Okay, but then we lose that to the fall until we're, of course, born again through the sacraments. Right. And so it's kind of like, well, all right, we're not mind readers anymore, right? We are both spirit and matter, but we've become so absorbed in the material, we just can't listen to the to the spiritual anymore. Like we're, we've gone, we've gone deaf. Mm -hmm. And so you have the second person of the Trinity is the very thought of God Himself. And hence, everything God wants to express to us. And so what is the incarnation but that eternal word getting spoken in time? Spoken at a particular point in time, just like your voice manipulates sound waves so I can get your thought. So God speaks that eternal word out. It takes on flesh. It takes on matter so that we can finally say, this is what God looks like. This is what God's trying to communicate to me. This is the word of God. This is who I am. This is yeah. where I'm destined to be. This is who made me. This is who love is. This is how I can enter into that. And love. the sacraments do the same thing. And, and so profoundly the sacrament of the Eucharist, because um, this is maybe like my, I know we said after the break, we talked a little bit about the Eucharistic revival, but this has been great. Um, the Eucharistic revival is coming, folks. Read about it. Get, get on ready. board. It's, get on board with it's it. Only, this is all part of the revival, yeah. right? Christ revives us. We don't revive anything. <laughs> but I think, I think this is my my kind of my final thought. Yeah. Is there is something very particularly unique about the Eucharist? It is sort of an extension of the incarnation because unlike the other sacraments in which there is some special grace or gift, 
The Eucharist is all of it because it is Christ, still present, body, blood, soul, and divinity, complete and entire, not like a part of Christ. You know, it's, it's the whole Christ. <clears throat> but we read in the scriptures that Christ emptied himself, right? He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He emptied himself, taking the form of a slave, you know. And so this teaches us something, right? The fact that Christ will be so humble shows us the tremendous love of God. We, we have some vague idea that God's really great and awesome and awe-inspiring and fearsome, perhaps. Mm-hmm. Um, but so by becoming a mortal, becoming human, and then further allowing himself to be mocked, scourged, tortured, beaten, killed, Christ reveals more to us of the depth of the heart of God. He's willing to do all this, right? So it's through that humility that he reveals himself to us. But the Eucharist, I want to say, actually adds one more dimension. Uh, So the incarnation reveals God perfectly in all of these ways by bringing himself down to our level in a sense, right? But he does something else in the Eucharist that he didn't do in the incarnation. He becomes our food. This is almost like more humiliating, (laughs) right? Think of baby Jesus in a manger, the food trough. For animals, right? And yet, in the most divine way, he is glorified through his death and reveals the ultimate gift of food, right? This is why the the multiplication of the loaves was so important to be right before the Eucharistic discourse, Yeah, you know? And between the two stories is the walking on water in the the storm. And it was set the week before Passover. Right. Yeah. Right. All <laughs> no of accident. the timing of that is yeah. so important. But I think that in the Eucharist, because this is like the divine decree of God, that this is going to happen when the priest says the words of consecration, and God doesn't break his promises. But he is once again putting these sort of bonds on himself, just like when he became man. Yes. Right? And so I think of Christ in the Adoration Chapel, not just at Mass, though that too. He, he doesn't get up and walk away. When, when I walk in there some days as I have, and I go in there to get mercy because I know that I am not in a good place at all, and I am not worthy to stand in the presence of God, he doesn't just get up and walk away. And it's made, he's made it so that in a sense he can't. Well, he can in his divine power, right? Right. But it's like there's this helplessness about the Eucharist, which is like the babe in the trough, right? And that's why I think... Uh, Many Catholic saints and mystics throughout time have found a profound meditational connection between Bethlehem and the Eucharist. The infant is wrapped in swaddling clothes. And if you know what swaddling clothes are, and we've used a lot in my family, they tie up the arms and legs so that the child cannot thrash around. Yeah. What is that but burial clothes? Mm. Right? So there's this, and and when you're dead, you can't move around, right? Right. So there's this idea of absolute helplessness. This infant who's not even strong enough to walk and is then sort of strapped in. It's like a a comfortable straitjacket, right? Yeah. It's like burial clothes. And then you're put here in this manger and everybody can come and kneel, the shepherds. They can look at you, right? But you can't do anything. You're stuck. Well, that's like Jesus and the monstrance to me. With all of us coming, the monstrance is the manger. That's right? magnificent. And and so it's like <laughs> we all come like the shepherds, like Mary, Joseph, or ones that are not nearly that holy, and we kneel in a door. Mm-hmm. And he's like, "I'm making myself helpless for you." And it's the same way of on the cross, literally helpless nailed there, for you. helpless for yeah. you. And then on uh. top of it, he's like, "Okay, 
if it wasn't enough for me to become man so you could actually hear my words, so you could actually hang out with me, you could have meals with me, you could walk with me and talk with me, I'm going to take this a step further. I'm going to become your food. Like if all of that wasn't enough, you know, I'm going to become your teacher. I'm going to become your friend. I'm going to become your rabbi, your master. And he's like, I'm going to become your food. This is the, this absolute humility of God who is omnipotent, making himself completely helpless so that we who are so far away can draw close and touch him. That is the power of the Eucharist. And that, I think, is what transforms our lives. And that is why we celebrate Corpus Christi every year. It's Amen. not a coincidence that this takes place after Pentecost. Mm. And the gift of taking Christ into the streets, the courage that those men must have had as they left the upper room, with the zeal that they were given, and then the desire to share Mass with the world. So, ready to close it out? I think so. All right. Yeah. Praise well, be to Jesus Christ. Praise be Jesus Christ now and forever. Everyone, thank you so much for listening. Uh, again, take part in the Eucharistic Revival. Do some research, research. Look it up. Look up the miracle of Lanciano. Uh, spend some time studying all the other Eucharistic miracles. Uh, Carl Acutis might be a great uh, modern day uh, young man who uh, is on the path to sainthood uh, to... Uh, he might be a great one to look into to know more he created a whole website about eucharistic miracles so um we just encourage you to keep praying for us we'll pray for you all and we look forward to seeing you next week on another episode of spirit and spire god bless mm -hmm.